This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Last week, John MacArthur celebrated 50 years in the pastorate at a conference at his congregation, Grace Community Church. During the event, MacArthur accused the Southern Baptist Convention of taking a, quote, headlong plunge toward allowing women preachers after women spoke at the SBC's 2019 annual gathering. That, he said, was a sign that the denomination no longer believed in biblical authority. I'm going to quote him here. When you literally overturn the teaching of Scripture to empower people who want power, you have given up biblical authority, said MacArthur, as a Religion News Service story reported. A moderator later asked MacArthur and his fellow panelists to offer their gut reactions to one or two word phrases. When the moderator said, quote, Beth Moore, MacArthur replied, go home. MacArthur's response provoked a strong reaction on social media, which is not a surprise, I'm sure, including current Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer, who tweeted, quote, Dear Beth Moore, you're welcome in our home anytime. This is hardly the first time that MacArthur has been associated with controversy. Last year, he helped organize a controversial statement responding to social justice and Christianity. He has frequently spoken out against the modern charismatic movement. And the college that he founded, the Master's College, is on accreditation probation. A strong proponent of expository preaching in 2006, MacArthur was acknowledged by Christianity Today as one of the most influential preachers of his time, and he's been a frequent guest on Larry King Live as a representative of evangelical Christianity. But for many, MacArthur remains just another name that pops up when some controversy swirls. We wanted to go deeper on who John MacArthur is and what he believes. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discussing major cultural events. Right now, I think it's about time for us to share our gut reactions to this particular story. Mark? When I saw that John... MacArthur was involved in another controversy. I thought of a line by Ronald Reagan during one of the presidential debates back in the day, here we go again, <laughs> or "Here, the, there you go again, I think is what he said. So MacArthur's been an interesting figure in my lifetime. There are times I read his stuff. In fact, in preparing for this show, I reread an interview he did with Leadership Journal, and I could do nothing but cheer it on. And then he says some things that you think, John, even if you believe that, why did you say that? <laughs> So I recognize now we're in a new generation of younger Christians coming up, and they might not have a long history with him as CT does. You obviously, in a parallel universe, we're thinking the same thing. It would be interesting to find out more about who John MacArthur is and what he believes. I mean, literally our whole show is based on controversies, right? And some of them feel like very live, fresh triangulation of particular events or issues that really seem to kind of like sizzle only in this particular time. And then there's some things that I'm like, I never expected this person to agree with this anyway, you know, what exactly is about it. And I feel like for that reason, the John MacArthur thing is really puzzling to me. You know, I feel in, in my mind, I do associate him with controversy and for wanting to kind of foment things. He's, he's, he's the type of person who's like not afraid to go there, right? He, he seems like that's his brand. And 
at the same time, I feel like I'm missing something about like this like deep love that people seem to have for him where there seemed to be a lot of disappointment that I wasn't necessarily expecting when this kind of news came out about what he said. And so part of the reason I wanted to do this to get more at, you know, why is he so beloved, revered? and so forth. He also is like very notable too because in my experience he doesn't necessarily talk as much about politics. A lot of the frustration that I've seen at many evangelical leaders in the past couple of years has been kind of just like frustration at the ways that they are encouraging people to vote or which presidential candidates to support. I'm not saying he hasn't done this and to be honest I, I can't remember if he came out to endorse anyone in 2016 but a lot of his frustrations seem more in like the theological territory. Right. The He's a theological territory. animal for, from beginning to end. We actually have someone who who knows John MacArthur on our show. Who is our guest today? Guest is Jonathan Holmes. He's the campus pastor at Parkside Church Green in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Jonathan has a master's degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and more to the point to today's episode, he graduated from the master's college with which obviously John MacArthur has been slow, closely associated with for many years and he worked with MacArthur for three years after his graduation. So he has a familiarity with the ambiance of the school of MacArthur himself, and I think he's going to be able to help us give us insight into who MacArthur is. Hey, how are you, Jonathan? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me, Morgan and Mark. It's great to have you here. Uh, going to be a huge benefit to our listeners and obviously myself as we try to understand the situation more just to kind of get a sense of what you know about John MacArthur's background and some of the things that have influenced him, potentially theologians that he models himself after. What can you tell us about that? You know, John is a John's a California native. Uh, I've, at least from my memory, he was born and raised there in Los Angeles and came from a rich tradition of pastors. I, I believe that John's actually a fourth generation pastor himself, and I think that in in a lot of ways has made him the type of person that he is today. He was a well known athlete in his college years, played football, went to Bob Jones, eventually ended up transferring to Azusa Pacific University, did his graduate work there at Talbot, and then came to. Grace Community Church. It was not the church that it is now in terms of its size and influence, but it started off there at Grace Community, and uh, the church began to grow, the radio ministry, Grace to You. And then I believe it was in 1985 is when MacArthur came to the college, to Master's College, and it had previously been known as Los Angeles Baptist Bible College. They had asked MacArthur to come there in 85, really to help the school, which was really struggling both financially and with enrollment. He came on in 85, and I remember, at least anecdotally from my time there at Masters, uh, they had kind of tasked MacArthur with two things. They said, we want more students, and we want our sports teams to start winning. And uh, that was a little bit of a joke there, because <laughs> the sports teams, at least from my knowledge, weren't weren't that good. And so immediately, I think MacArthur was able to help in, in both of those realms as he started out. Uh, I think his, I think you're right about his influence being really California. It's really interesting. He's just essentially raised in that whole milieu, especially Southern California. But we should, the reader should be aware he actually was born in Calgary, Alberta, which which means how did how did this Canadian, <laughs> this mild mannered Canadian, become such a strong figure? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I also think I don't know how many of our listeners are familiar with the institutions that we just mentioned. Bob Jones, I think most people are familiar, has a very strong, I was going to say fundamentalist streak, yeah, but streak may no, be too no, light of a term. You know, they're they're, they're pr pretty, proudly fundamentalists. Exactly. They have been for decades. Uh huh. But Azusa and Talbot, for instance, are seen as much more mainstream evangelical institutions. Well, now... But that was wow. in 63 that he obtained his degrees from them. So I think they were still considered on the more conservative end of evangelicalism. 
MacArthur got to Grace Community Church. Was that part of a particular denomination? Not to my knowledge, Morgan. I, I, I believe and I understand that Grace Community has always been a non-denominational church. Okay. And MacArthur himself was not, was he ordained in a particular tradition or denomination? Again, not that I know of, not that I can remember. So then what were the really strong theological tenets that soon came to characterize John MacArthur? I think one of the things that you will see as a common thread in MacArthur, his ministry, and really anything that orbits his world, so from the school to the seminary to Grace to You, is a high, high view of Scripture. And so when we think of a high view of Scripture, you think about the fundamentalist, modernist controversy in the 1920s as it moved forward. For some people, you know, being labeled a fundamentalist might be, you know, might be a euphemism or a knock against them. And I think for MacArthur, that's a positive, that there is this extremely high view of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture. So in terms of his, you know, his preaching, in terms of how he views really every aspect of life, it all funnels through that grid. From very early on at the church, I mean, expositional preaching was a hallmark of his ministry and teaching that. Beginning with the books of the New Testament, he was going to preach systematically through it. And I think probably more so than any other mainstream evangelical pastor today has brought expositional preaching to the forefront in terms of people modeling their own preaching style after it. That would definitely, I would say, would be a hallmark of MacArthur's preaching and ministry career. And I think it's that preaching that upon which his New Testament commentary s- series was based. Yes, and that that entire commentary series, I mean, he has systematically preached his way through the New Testament. During my time there, he was in the book of Luke the entire time that I was there. So, I mean, it it can take him a long time to get through uh, to get through his content. And there's a lot to be said about that too. I mean, he is he is very dedicated and very determined and he has a, a deep well of knowledge to pull from. A little bit of the downside, though, sometimes as I think the Old Testament is not as emphasized sometimes in his teaching and preaching, and he he definitely favors the New Testament for sure. Well, I do admire the fact that he he decided to go through verse by verse of the of the whole New Testament because I've been a preacher, and there's a strong temptation to skip uncomfortable parts or parts that don't seem to correlate with my theology very neatly. Yeah, I admire anyone who does that. That's great. That emphasis then on expository preaching. How did that kind of shape the master's college itself as well? I'd say one of the, I'd say there are a few areas or a few ways that just his view of scripture and his theology of scripture really influences it from the mission statement to the way that they've hired professors and and structured the campus. In terms of being able to work at master's, you have to adhere to a fairly strict doctrinal statement that that John and uh, the board of directors have, have put forward. And so in terms of his view of scripture, one of the hallmarks, I think, of his theology and his view of scripture is that he believes in a literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of scripture. The Bible is to be interpreted literally. And so anything from the way that they view creation, so at master's, uh, that would be a hallmark for them as well. You have to believe in a six-day literal 24-hour creation in order to to work at Master's or to work at the seminary. And again, that's pushed through the funnel of we have a high view of Scripture, and so we value everything that Scripture says, and we interpret Scripture through this particular lens. And so what comes out of that is an overarching framework that everything gets pushed through. So whether it be how you view creation to how you view the end times, you know, all of that goes through there. So, you know, for instance, if you were applying at the Master's Seminary, again, my understanding could have changed is that you need to be premillennial in your doctrinal 
interpretation of the Old and the New Testament. So if you're not premillennialist, then you know you wouldn't be eligible for admission. Whereas obviously at other seminaries, uh, different views would be welcomed or encouraged or not even be an issue for admission. So just to give that a broader context, I think there were many evangelical institutions that in which premillennialism back in the 50s was a requirement of belief, and nearly all of them have abandoned that as long as people believe in the second coming of Christ. The, the fact that, that Masters has kept it suggests something about their location in the theological landscape. I actually want to talk to you about that specific tension when you were talking about particular theological claims being made under the framing of we take a very high view of Scripture. And I'm sure there are other Christians who would say we take a very high view of Scripture and not everyone's going to agree on this issue. Or we take a very high view of Scripture. We have come to a different conclusion on this. How does that really get played out in terms of being able to kind of wrestle with that, but equally claim this very high view of Scripture? I would say personally, I think one of the downsides of just the environment or the ethos, that particular theological viewpoint can produce would just be the sense of we're the ones who have it right because we can always default back to, well, this is what the Bible says. Somebody might have an opposing interpretation that they've gleaned from Scripture and it would be invalidated. Well, that's you know, that's not true. You don't hold to, that's not a correct interpretation. You know, you're not reading scripture literally. Uh, You're trying to twist scripture to make it say what you want it to say. You're trying to filter scripture through the framework of culture. So basically, if you have a different interpretation, I I would say those are not very welcomed at all within that culture. It can breed, I think, oftentimes a a pridefulness and an arrogance of, listen, we're kind of the, the holders of true biblical truth here. If you don't agree with us on every single point of doctrine that we would say is essential, well, then you don't have a high view of Scripture or you're not interpreting Scripture correctly. Whether or not that was explicit, I would definitely say it's implicit in terms of the way they preach and teach. I think it hinges on, uh, you called it the grammatical historical reading of Scripture? Yes. Yeah, and I think that's where the differences might lie, because I think to take six-day creation, someone might say, I have a high view of Scripture, and I believe the first chapter of Genesis teaches that God created the world, but that's a poetic passage, and therefore it refers to God's general creative care for the world, and we can believe in evolution as Christians. Those from uh, MacArthur's school would say, well, no, you've already left the grammatical, historical literalness of the text, so you're obviously not interpreting right. So I think some some of the differences hinge on that notion that every verse in the Bible means what it says on the surface, on the very surface. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Mark. And, and one of the ways then that they might take something like that in the Genesis 1 and 2 uh, sections being poetry is they would view that as, well, listen, if you can accommodate or twist Scripture to accommodate, like, let's say, an evolutionary viewpoint on how we all came into existence, if you can't really trust the truthfulness, the literal truthfulness of Genesis 1 and 2, well, then you can't trust the Bible on anything. And so it is this argument of every single word of Scripture has to be literally true in the way that we interpret it, or the entire system yeah, falls apart. Yeah. Then the resurrection so, becomes a myth, yeah, the, exactly, a nice story, exactly. etc. Yeah. Yeah. So you understand so, you understand the reasoning behind it. Absolutely. And that's why there is such a vociferous defense. So many things that I would say 
a lot of evangelicals would say would be non-essentials. For instance, you know, like a woman's role in the church or drinking or dancing or your fuel and creation or the end times. Those all become major touch points for MacArthur because I think in many ways his view of Scripture is such that, listen, if, if you budge on any of these areas, the whole thing begins to fall apart. It, it sounds like... In other words, what you're saying is almost every single thing can be a slippery slope in some ways. So I, I am wondering, I mean, has John MacArthur not changed his mind on anything in 40 years? And I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, like, does John MacArthur hold all the same views when he did? Or did you see him change or nuance some of the positions that he held on things? That's been a question that, that I've heard a lot of different people ask in a variety of ways. And, and honestly, Morgan, I can't think of a time where he has said, hey, I was wrong here. I have a new understanding or I view this differently or this passage. I think that there was one or two minor doctrinal issues that I would hear rumblings about at Masters when I was a student, but nothing major or significant that I can think of. And, and again, for MacArthur, that would be a positive, not a negative. I mean, if anything, he is incredibly consistent. And he's incredibly faithful to his views. It's not budging, you know, some what some people would call dogmatic on certain things. So, no, I can't think of anything of note that he's changed his mind on or said, hey, you know, talk to this person. And they kind of showed me this or walked alongside me in this particular area and convinced me of a different view. Since I'm a little older than both of you, I can remember and have recalled some. I mean, he has changed his views on a few things. But but nothing nothing like we've mentioned something uh, called the doctrine of incarnational sonship was too involved to go into. <laughs> but the point is the point is that he doesn't think of himself as infallible. So when he changed his mind, he said, "I've I've done a deeper reading of Scripture, and now I I've concluded this." It's a matter of his his fault as a human being not going deep enough. That's how he would defend a change. Yeah. I seemingly recall a conversation with you, Mark, a couple years ago where we were talking about MacArthur and you suggested that he may be more easily understood as a fundamentalist rather than an evangelical. I don't know if you mind sharing a little bit more about what you meant by that. I'm sure it relates to some of the discussions that we're having right now. The difference would be just some of the distinctions we're making here. This concern about the literal, grammatical, historical reading of Scripture and how it affects not only what Christians have for thousands of years considered the major doctrines and unbudgeable doctrines, but stuff we nowadays, most Christians say, well, Christians of goodwill can have different views. And there's many differences between evangelicals and fundamentalists, but one one point of difference would be, I think evangelicals are generally more willing to look at different passages of Scripture and understand their different genres. So they might look at Genesis' account as a beautiful, beautiful poetry, speaking of God's creation, absolutely convinced that God has created the world and has created it with purpose and all that sort of thing, but not feel like they're bound to a grammatical historical point of view. And that's that same thing would apply to almost uh, women's ordination. It would apply to how we understand Israel. Traditionally, that would be one difference. The other, other difference between fundamentalists and evangelicals traditionally is that fundamentalists would worry about you, Morgan, if you were associating with people that weren't fundamentalists, the second degree separation. Uh, whereas evangelicals think, no, it's my job to do second-degree separation. <laughs> it's my job to go out to non-fundamentalists and co- cavort with them and get them to know, help them to know the truth of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't know if he goes that far, but that's traditionally been one of the hallmarks of fundamentalism. 
I was just going to say, I don't think that, as I understand second degree separation, I don't think that MacArthur would hold to that entirely. I mean, he associates and is friends and has had at his conferences and has been at conferences with people that he does have disagreements with. You know, I'm thinking about somebody as famous as R.C. Sproul. I mean, they famously debated infant baptism versus believer's baptism. And uh, he and R.C. maintain a very close and intimate friendship. But there is a sense where I would say as time has gone on, at least just from an observation standpoint, I have seen more of a dependence on in-house people that are close to MacArthur, both at his conferences. And you see more and more people who maybe used to be in his orbit that he would have on that would maybe have differing views, not be as associated with him. So I I don't think that he would think that it was wrong to to associate with those people. But I think in terms of who he's going to give a platform to and associate with, it seems like, at least from an outsider's perspective, that those circles are getting a little bit smaller. Well, let's talk about one of the most prominent movements that he is against and has spoken out a lot, and that is the charismatic movement. Can you tell me a little bit about more about that, Jonathan? I actually don't know much about that history. Back again, I'm not sure the publication date, but MacArthur published a, a pretty well-known book called Charismatic Chaos. You know, as recently as a few years ago, his church hosted the Strange Fire Conference, where he essentially took charismatic theology, Pentecostalism to to task. And again, to understand that in his, I would say, antipathy towards charismatic theology and Pentecostalism, it goes back to his view of Scripture. And because charismatics and Pentecostals believe that the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit is alive and active, that, that the Holy Spirit can speak to people, that we can still receive revelation, that is a significant problem for MacArthur and his view of Scripture. His view of Scripture is that it is a closed canon that the Lord does not speak to us today in either an audible voice or through impressions, but he speaks to us primarily through his word. And so to open up the door to such subjectivism is incredibly problematic and, and again, for him, would undermine the very nature of what Scripture is. So for him, charismatics and charismatic theology is a real enemy, I think, to him in terms of how he views Scripture and how he views theology. And though I disagree with him on that point, I, he does have that does resonate with some schools of Lutheranism, for example, which puts a heavy dependence on the Word of God as the vehicle by which God communicates himself to us today and would be just uh, inimically concerned about the charismatic influence, at least traditionally in some circles. Now, the charismatic movement has made its way into almost every tradition in the Church now, so that, that might be more of a historical statement than a current one. And, and again, for MacArthur, you know, it's one of those things where sometimes you you maybe highlight or find the worst examples of where charismatic theology has gone bad or has gone errant, and you kind of use that as a little bit of a scapegoat to kind of paint all of charismatic theology. And I think as all three of us know, there's a wide variety of views even within that movement. But there's a sense where that type of theology is very feelings-based, it's very subjective, it's based on impressions, it's not tethered to the Word of God. And again, once you untether yourself from the Word of God, you become your own authority. That's going to lead you down the path of doctrinal error and has to be corrected. And again, for MacArthur, it's not just that we don't hold that interpretation, but that has to be confronted. That has to be contended with. So again, very much in a Jude sense, he has this sense of he is contending for the faith once delivered all to the saints. And I think that he really sees himself as kind of like this warrior for for biblical truth to kind of call out what he would say is false teaching. And just to be clear, it's called sensationist because MacArthur knows better than anyone that we have all these experience, this, this sort of thing happening in the New Testament, but he believes, based on his reading of Scripture, that these special gifts have ceased in the church. 
I do want to talk about tone, but because I do feel like I think here at CT, we would argue that part of the way that you embody theology is actually your tone and how you communicate with other people. In many ways, you know, not to be redundant to what we hear all the time of, of the medium being the message, but it can be really challenging to hear what else someone else might be saying as far as the particular nuances of their theology or where they're coming from when there's this particular sense of bombasticness and this ability to just kind of write people off. And so, you know, you said earlier that you wouldn't say that MacArthur, you wouldn't characterize him as a sexist, but I do know that there were plenty of people who f- were really offended by the way that he just kind of, I, I felt like yeah. almost like yeah. flipped yeah. Beth Moore off verbally in that sense. And to that extent, many people who really love and support her, as opposed to wanting to assume the best about that. Yeah, I guess that I I just bring that up to say, like, has anyone really confronted him ever and said, like, John, we really understand where you're trying to come from on this. We like are going to assume best intentions how you're doing it. But we do want to kind of suggest for you that you're not doing yourself any favors with the intensity that you're hitting people with. That would be called a wife. (laughs) <laughs> Morgan, I'm not aware. I'm not aware of that. And, you know, in, in terms of the, the inner workings of MacArthur's circle and, and, and who has access and who's speaking into his life. I, I don't know that. I would hope that, you know, that, that faithful friends around him are encouraging him towards a more uh, gracious tone. I think in some ways, again, though, he would view it as that is him being gracious. It is gracious to speak truth. Uh, now, that is I would a good point. That's a stretch, and... Mark. No, no, no. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that's a valid. We have to it, it, take it from the position of a social justice person who feels like he needs he or she needs to speak truth to power. It's really uncomfortable. It sometimes can be pretty firm, but I think they would argue, and I would agree with them. There, in that moment when it's time to speak the truth to power, it is a moment of grace and mercy. And, and, and again, I think you would see it as, hey, I'm actually trying to save this person from, again, doctrinal error, from biblical malpractice. But but Morgan, to your point, what he said about Beth Moore and how he said it, the way the question was constructed, the laughter that was going on in the room, the associations with Paula White, QVC, women hawking jewelry. I mean, I'm married. I have four daughters. I, I found it to be incredibly offensive, problematic in terms of those statements. And then I'd probably say not only the statement, but just, again, the audience's reaction to it as well. It just did not seem charitable to me at all. And so, again, in my thinking, you can have disagreements with Beth Moore, with her theology, with women's role in church, but is there a better platform, medium, or way to go about talking about those things than in the manner in which he did. And I think that's kind of a point of disagreement where, again, you see people might hold to something that he says of you on women's roles in the church, but the way that he expresses them is where things begin to break down. I think there's a there's obviously a line between prophetic, speaking truth to power, and being flippant. It, it did come across as kind of flippant and not taking the concerns of the SBC women as seriously as he might, even if he would disagree with them. Right. To, to the point about the way the question was even framed. I mean, I think in some ways it was it was an unfair question to have to answer something of that magnitude in just two words. So, yeah, for sure. So- this episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff. And you're probably asking yourself questions like, Are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? 
Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. One thing I've heard a lot from people when they're talking about MacArthur is that he does not want to capitulate to the culture. What does he mean by culture, though? I wouldn't want to speak for him because I don't I don't know if I've ever heard him definitively say that. But I would say culture for him is it's this larger than life influence of just the world that we live in, its influences, its philosophy, its music, its art, its literature, its proponents. I wouldn't say he views culture as a boogeyman, but it's definitely something that I think can be ill-defined in not only MacArthur's world, but then people that would be acolytes of his to, again, you, you kind of need a little bit of a boogeyman to preach against, to kind of highlight in your more polemic style of preaching. So culture is not seen as something that can be transformed. It's not seen as something that can be redeemed, but it's something that we we need to contend against and that we need to push against, not be taken captive by. And therefore, it is a constant temptation for the church? Yes, a constant temptation to, to go after culture's approval. And I think, again, for MacArthur, the way that he sees it is that, you know, in so many of these different movements, as he's kind of seen them go by, whether it be from Pentecostalism to charismatic theology to, you know, the emergent church to social justice, etc., he would view that, I believe, as the church's way to ingratiate themselves with the culture, join themselves, make themselves more palatable to culture. And for him, that's that's a no-no. You don't do that. You don't need to make the gospel more palatable for people. You don't need to contextualize the gospel. And again, uh, contextualization is something that, that MacArthur has 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 preached against and, and is pretty strong against in terms of contextualizing or, or actually changing the, the format or the tone of the actual message to, to better fit the audience that you're preaching to. MacArthur, I think, would be very averse to that. Uh, on a somewhat humorous note, that is a criticism of evangelicalism by 
Sometimes people on the left as well as the right is that evangelicals are that group of Christians who are just really anxious for the culture to approve of them. <laughs> yes, yeah. And I think yeah. MacArthur would, would probably chuckle at that and say, yeah, that's exactly the problem. My pastor at Parkside Church, Alistair Begg, has a, a really memorable way of saying it. He says, the church tries to marry the spirit of the age and finds itself a widow in the next. I, I think that for MacArthur, that's very true, that the church is unfortunately trying to marry the spirit of the age, trying to gain that approval from culture, and we're never going to get there. Culture is really never going to approve of us, but yet we're kind of like these these little kids saying, hey, approve of us and, and want us, and then we find ourselves uh, a widow in the next age as culture moves on to the next bigger thing. And I think MacArthur sees that tendency, rightly so, and is saying, hey, we don't need to adapt to this. We have a timeless truth, a timeless message. Just preach it, teach it, and period, into paragraph again. All right. Well, we've tricked our whole audience to nod along to that section. No, teasing. <laughs> um, but so I wanted to, to bring up social justice because I, I think that this is something where this type of idea of culture is has an interesting way of being contextualized in this particular tension. So some of our listeners will remember that last year, John MacArthur and a dozen other Christian leaders launched this website that was called like Presenting the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. And in the statement, the signatories claimed that the social justice movement endangered Christians with, quote, an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, risk represent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God and Jesus Christ. They also basically argue that there was a secular threat infiltrating the evangelical church, a lot of that coming from social justice. Is that defined? So th this sparked a huge debate that we actually talked about on our podcast, as I suggested earlier, episode 127. Always, always right in with the curve. You know, if people want to listen to it, it was a good, good conversation. Good. That way they'll like us. <laughs> okay. Well, Mark is attacking me now. So anyway, this, so this really caused this huge conversation, partially because there were many Christians who were saying they were trying to affirm what the social justice conversation can add for Christians. Or And, and I will just say that myself, like one argument that I have been known to make to other people is that like sometimes this language can give us ways of seeing the world and understanding things that illuminate what we're called to do in scripture. And that might be one way to see it. So I'm just curious, what was your take on all of this, Jonathan? I think in understanding who MacArthur is and the social justice movement per se, as, it, as it's uh, been called, I think you can understand his reaction. You know, that there's this kind of cultural zeitgeist right now that's talking about not only social justice, but the Me Too movement. And you see the church in many ways, I, I think, in, in many ways, trying to come to grips with their own past history and in mishandling certain cases of uh, sexual abuse and in, in, in racial history and racial inequalities. And the church, I think, is talking about it more, trying to address some of those things. Again, the gospel is kind of put in this framework of understanding it from a justice perspective. For MacArthur, that's problematic. It's, it's problematic in the sense of the gospel is unchanged. It doesn't bow to culture. It doesn't need to seek to accommodate itself in so the heart of the gospel is not about racial inequality. It's not about racial injustice, which I don't think the promoters of social justice are trying to say, but that's how I think MacArthur hears it. Anything that distracts away from what he would say is the primary message of the gospel is seen as a threat, seen as you know, a movement or an accommodation towards culture. And like you were saying, Morgan, it, for some people, it's just another helpful way to think through their faith. It's another helpful lens to help them understand the gospel. But for MacArthur, again, you give an inch on something like this, and before you know it, you've 
you've lost all type of doctrinal purity, which is why there's this strong sense of you have to toe the line on all of these issues. So does he ever reference historically what that's what that has looked like? The natural place I go to when someone makes that argument is that, well, yeah, there was a time when the social gospel became more and more prominent in mainline churches, and it just led them down a road that hasn't been all that helpful. Does he refer to that at all, or is it just purely a biblical argument? No, I, I think that Mark, what you're what you're alluding to there is is definitely one of his concerns is that you know moving an inch like this towards something like even dialoguing about social justice or the Me Too movement or charismatic theology, whatever it is, again puts you down the slippery slope of abandoning biblical truth, of abandoning doctrinal purity. In many ways, being this guardian of biblical truth contending for the faith, he's going to very much position himself as as someone who's not going to give ground in those particular areas. I I fully recognize that you are not MacArthur here when I quote unquote push back on this. So, you know, take it for, for how it is. I'm just trying to like kind of understand this. Clearly something like racism we would acknowledge as a sin and being outside of what the Bible calls us to being outside of what how the Bible calls us to treat each other or when it comes to the Me Too movement, anything that has to do with sexual assault or sexual harassment or sexual abuse. I'm sure that I could sit in a room with John McCarthy and we could all agree that there's nothing in the Bible that condones any of that type of stuff. Is it just the fact that we might be having conversations that the world is also having within our churches? Or is it using the language and the framework that they used to talk about those things inside the church? Because I, I highly doubt that he's an always in any way condoning these types of sins? Absolutely not. I mean, I don't believe that MacArthur's sexist or racist. I don't believe that at all. But what you just identified, Morgan, I think is true that in, in both of those ways, there's problem problems with the actual language that it borrows language from the world. And I think that was one of his main concerns in the Beth Moore talk where he was critiquing the SBC and their adoption of Resolution 9 on intersectionality and critical race theory. Again, for him, that's just mind-boggling in many ways. That is mind-boggling to think that two cultural categories of thinking or philosophy would have anything to contribute to biblical Christianity or the conversation they're in. So the language is problematic for sure, but then also just, I think, because culture is talking about it and the church is talking about it, it seems problematic as well. Again, that, that, that move where the church wants to be affirmed by culture. And so it's kind of that retreat back into our silo, retreat back into our positions, kind of dig the trenches in. This is what true biblical truth is. We're going to preach this timeless message, and that's all that we need to say. I I, I definitely don't think that he would, you know, like on those categories, he would obviously clearly see those things as sin. So maybe a different way to see it is I just think a, a matter of emphasis. MacArthur's emphasis and emphases are going to be significantly different than where other evangelicals would place them right now. I'm not trying to be a supporter of MacArthur's views or anything, but I, I do want to always keep him in a larger theological context. So in this regard, if Karl Barth had gone to that Southern Baptist seminary, heard that, that language being used to help us understand racism and sexuality that t- it takes its cues from the social sciences, he would also ob- fiercely object to the fact that we're using the categories of social and political science to help us understand an issue. So in that regard, I mean, MacArthur's instincts are theologically good in that regard. Now, Bart would would then not say we shouldn't be talking about this. He would try to figure out a way to talk about it biblically and theologically and still incorporate it into the life of the church and the talk of the church. And maybe that would be the difference. But, uh, MacArthur said, no, that would be a conversation we'd have after after the church, maybe. And I think that you raised such a good point there, Mark. I think it's not like MacArthur would be the only one that would have concerns. And again, as you guys have read articles and 
been on Twitter, you realize there's been all sorts of conversation about that particular topic at the SBC. I think one of the things that distinguishes MacArthur that sometimes people in evangelicalism have a problem with is his tone and the way that he addresses some of these issues. So it's not just that he disagrees with it, but sometimes the rhetoric and the tone, which I think for a lot of people, he would kind of be dismissive of even those categories. The rhetoric and the tone is you know, inflammatory. It's unkind. It's not believing the best about its opponents. Again, at least in my experiences, I've talked and, you know, been with alumni and interact with people from his world. A lot of times people actually do agree with where he's coming from, but it's the presentation and the way that he puts it out there that is so difficult for a lot of people. And it doesn't help that the questioner said you can only give a two-word response. Right, right. Because pretty much no matter what you say... It's going to come across as harsh. I mean, that's the that's the problem with Twitter grammar. It just there's hardly a way for it to come off well, no matter what you say. And in all my interactions with him, and again, it was as a student and and then as an employee there at the college. I mean, in all my interactions with him, I mean, he's a kind person. He's gracious. He's generous. He's attentive to you in conversation. One time, I was at a I was at a grocery store, and some friends of mine had groceries, and and he paid for everybody's groceries. You know, on on the on the on the on the stand on the line that we had. So there is, I think, a side of him that a lot of people don't see. They see a public persona of him mediated through his writings and through his ministry. But again, in trying to believe the best about him and where he's coming from, you know, I think in person he's a very generous, kind individual. But sometimes when he's, I think, speaking in a more public setting, the tone and the rhetoric can be a bit more inflammatory. I'd read some reports that at some point, uh, the feeling at Master's Seminary or Master's University or college, there was a a feeling of fear and intimidation are the two words I've heard. So did you find that to be the case when you were there? I did not find that to be be the case when I was there. And again, I was at master's quite a long time ago. I don't think of myself as an older person, but I I graduated there in 2005. And so I've been out of the college for quite some time. I think that at least from my understanding, from talking with alumni, talking with former and current employees and reading the WASC report uh, that had come out about their accreditation probation, I think that that has intensified over the years, or at least maybe has, I, I think maybe people are just experiencing it more, but I did not sense like a, a, a an atmosphere of fear and intimidation. I did sense, though, that you needed to agree and hold to the doctrines that he held to, that good Christians, Bible-believing Christians, held to and believed what he believed, preached, taught, and espoused. And if you didn't, well, that's that's a problem. You're not reading God's Word correctly. So I would say I did come away with that. You know, unfortunately, that can breed an arrogance and a pridefulness in the graduates in terms of this, you know, you're sending off graduates and pastors into settings where they kind of view themselves as mini MacArthur's. Yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> Mark, I wonder how you're shaping people. Exactly. Sending them off. We, we spoke about this a little bit a couple minutes ago, but I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to, Jonathan, how being in California has affected MacArthur's ministry and also how MacArthur himself has influenced Christianity in California. I mean, obviously, Southern California is a pretty secular environment. It's a pretty diverse environment. I think, again, it has that sense when you go to, to master's or rather when you go to Grace Community where the seminary is located, there is very much the sense of they are 
huddled in. They are this bastion for for biblical truth that is trying to combat the spread of you know doctrinal error and cultural encroachment. I would say it maybe tends to have a little bit more of a battle mentality, potentially less charitable, you know, towards opponents or towards people who disagree with you. Which again, in that culture, you know, where they're prizing you know affirmation and acceptance, that's that's not going to be something I don't think that a MacArthur and his followers are going to. To, to also see similarly in terms of prized virtues, they're going to want to speak truth and and strive after doctrinal purity. I do think he has enormous influence, though. I mean, he has enormous influence. I think in the in the wider realm of evangelicalism, maybe it's waning a bit, but in terms of his influence, both through the radio, uh, through the school, the college, the seminary, the Masters Academy International, which. Is a network of seminaries and schools across the world. Grace to you. There's there's a very strong reach where MacArthur is able to get into a lot of places where where others are not. So I think there in Southern California, he really has built a pretty strong foundation from which his ministry has has flourished and expanded. We tend to think of fundamentalists, and I think it would be fair to call MacArthur a fundamentalist, as having the, the heartland of fundamentalism would be either the Midwest or the South. I mean, Los Angeles has birthed two important fundamentalist institutions, Grace Church and Master Seminary, as well as Biola, which I don't know that it would just—Biola would characterize itself as fundamentalist today, but it was started as the Bible Institute of Los Angeles out of the fundamentalist controversy, fundamentalist modernist controversy as a, you know, a bulk word for the truth of the gospel. So it's interesting that this, this place of hedonism— Hollywood especially, <laughs> is a birthplace of fundamentalist institutions. And even to, to many degrees, the birthplace of the modern charismatic movement with the Azusa Street revivals and uh, there in Los oh, Angeles. That's true, again, yeah. There's a, lot, yeah. there's a lot of different things that have happened there in Southern California, like you mentioned with Biola, R.A. Torrey, the fundamentals, etc. You don't, you maybe associate that with the Deep South or the Southern Baptists, but Southern California and the institutions that has birthed out, you know, Fuller Theological Seminary, etc. They have played, you know, a pretty critical role in the landscape of evangelicalism. Yeah, and that's where uh, Billy Graham made his first splash in 1949 during a preaching preaching series. That that was when he became national attention. He had a, a personal experience at Forest Home, which is a Christian conference center in Southern California, that was very important to him. So yeah, that would be interesting to do a the spiritual history of Southern, Southern California. California would be really yeah. interesting. <laughs> Yeah. All right. We have something new there. Okay. So last question on a more lighthearted note. So recently there was a master seminary grad who was preaching at Kanye West's Sunday services, and that caused some stir in the evangelical community to see someone with, I would say, more conservative theological credentials, nevertheless being highlighted on stage with one of the most famous performers of our time. Was that surprising to you? It absolutely was. I think when the first picture came out of, of Adam Tyson, who's the pastor who has been traveling with Kanye West, you know, again, all of the different alumni or people that have been connected with MacArthur in the past, I mean, conversations online and, you know, in text and whatnot, it was very surprising. <laughs> but I mean, per- personally, I was I was thrilled, again, to, to see someone like Adam be able to have a role and a place in someone as famous as Kanye's life, I think. Again, for me, I want to believe the best, both about Adam and Kanye, and I just praise God for whatever is happening there in his life and just pray that it continues to bear fruit. But you're right, it was absolutely shocking uh, for, me, for me to see that and uh, to, to begin reading some of the articles about how their relationship developed. To John MacArthur, touching Kanye West. <laughs> there we go. Yes, we- absolutely. <laughs> we'll hear it all. I'm quick to listen. <laughs> we leave you with that image. Well, thank you, everyone, for the robust discussion. 
all of our listeners, I'm sure you'll have strong feelings. Also, we invite you to tell us where we're wrong or nuance things as well. So please send us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are at CT Podcasts, and we will definitely read the most well-written emails, if there are any, about the subject on a future episode. So please send them our way. And I also want to remind everyone that this podcast, our lovely discussion that we had, is made possible by... Everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine and in our November issue, we have this piece that is written by our CT pastors editor, Kyle Rohane, about Greek life at universities. Mark, I think you got a kick out of this article. First today, I went to University of California at Santa Cruz. It was very countercultural. We didn't have any sports teams. We didn't have any fraternities or sororities because that was too too establishment back in our day. So I, I've actually had not much, I have not had much experience with them. And the the only experience I've had is anecdotal about how horrible they are morally. <laughs> so, so this story by Kyle Rohane about how they're how Christians negotiate fraternity and sorority life, and how how there are some sororities and fraternities that are specifically Christian. I'm going, okay, this is a world I had known nothing about, but now I know something about it. So I'm glad CT does that sort of thing. Absolutely. And it's just an interesting look for people who are very far removed from secular higher ed. This is, I think, both an informative piece and also a hopeful one as well. All right. So if you want to read this piece, you can. You can become a subscriber to Christianity Today. We have access to our website and you can read anything there that you want to. You can also get our magazine and you can do that by going to orderct.com slash podcasts. It's orderct.com slash podcasts. And now it's time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy. You're up first, Mark. I hesitate to share this because it'll help our listeners realize how Neanderthal I am in some regards. So I don't we just know where you're going. <laughs> well, we got this message on our Amazon Prime thing saying that they would no longer be able to send their the movies through our old, old Panasonic TV, which is from 2011. Are you serious? Yeah, no. You had to update your either get a get a new TV or, as I did the research, get an Amazon Fire Stick. But they'd been doing the okay, whatever. That's whatever. not about Amazon. Anyway, I was very skeptical, but the Fire Stick was only like twenty nine bucks. Oh, I'll try. I'll see what it's like. I absolutely love it. <laughs> now, people who've known about Fire Sticks for years are going, "Where have you been, Mark Galley?" But a new technology. I have to admit, I'm a I'm a sucker. I'm weak, and the fact that you can just speak into this thing and say, "Better call Saul," and it immediately comes up on your screen is like, this is almost as good as the party. It's pretty the Red terrible Sea. to have to type it in, right? <laughs> exactly. We can all acknowledge that part <laughs> yeah. is terrible. Those are the moments when, you know, I, I rag on technology a lot in my writing because I do think it's a force for evil a lot of the time in my own life. But what sometimes it just it's a simple delight and you say, Thank God for creating human beings who can create this this sort of thing. What fun. And people can find you. I publish something called the Galley Report. You can find it at Christianity Today, the Galley Report slash oh, no, I'm sorry, Christianity Today slash the Galley Report. G A L L I. It's a newsletter published on Fridays. I link to articles and make comments about them. I think it's pretty good. But of course I'm writing it. <laughs> All right. That was a lot of Mark. Okay, Jonathan, go ahead. A moment that brought me joy. Probably uh, this past weekend, my my family and I, we were in uh, Orlando for a speaking engagement, and I took my oldest two girls to Harry Potter World, and they're huge, huge Harry Potter fans. And And you are one, too. Don't lie. I'm a huge. You're right. Guilty as charged. I had been there before, and I just could not wait to take them. And as soon as we walked into Diagon Alley in University, 
universal. The, the, the look on my daughter's faces was just priceless. It was pure, unadulterated joy as a parent made me so happy. That's awesome. So, what was the yeah. favorite thing? Okay, so obviously just walking in there brought you a lot of joy, but was there a particular other thing that happened there that was amazing? I mean, I just loved the immersive experience that it was. I mean, they loved everything about it. I mean, they told me at the end of the day that it was the best day of their life. So I think they loved the rides. They loved the food. They loved all the attractions. I mean, it was just one big day of joy. Jonathan may be old enough to remember when uh, when the, the books would come out, they would come out at midnight. And they would yes. be featured at Barnes & Noble. So we had yeah. a trip to the West Coast, I think, on flight, like at 6 in the morning or something. But my daughter, Teresa, was dying to get the next book. So we went to Barnes & Noble at midnight, got the book, and she stayed up all night reading it. And then we boarded the plane. She was still reading it. And there were like... Every other seat was with a child reading that book. It was an amazing phenomenon at the time. All right, Jonathan, where can people find you outside of this? People can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Holmes, uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-H-O-L-M-E-S. And I love following a variety of people. And they can also find the counseling center that I serve and oversee at fieldstonecounseling.org. And that is a Christian counseling center that's based here in Northeast Ohio. So we serve clients remotely and then at four different locations here in the Northeast Ohio area. My precious moment is that yesterday someone texted me, one of my friends texted me and asked me if I wanted to go see this speaker speak. I'm not being very clear about it. Let me just tell you something. I was like on the fence about it. This is a speaker that I've seen, like heard her on a bunch of podcasts. And I looked up how much the tickets were. The tickets to go see her were like $56. So I decided the answer was obviously, yes, I would like to see her speak. Not every day that someone gives you $56 worth of fun. And the speaker I got to see was this woman named Samine Nosrat. People may be familiar with her cookbook or her TV show. It's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And I actually bought her cookbook for my sister for Christmas a couple of years ago. But she is someone that loves cooking and she loves other people and she loves being alive. And I was just so impressed because about half the stuff that she talked about is stuff that I've heard her talk about in other podcasts. But she did not phone in anything as she was saying it, recounting it for probably like the 30th or 60th time. Just getting to experience her joy of being up on the stage was a delight. And I was so thankful that my friend asked me to go to that. And then I was thankful I didn't pay $56 for something that I could have also experienced for free on a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself, Matt Lindor. The music is by Sweeps. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's also where you can find it. Also on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts as well. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the Wheaton College Graduate School. Respected and represented the world over, the Master of Arts in Marriage and Family Therapy at the Wheaton College Graduate School will inspire, challenge, and equip you to be a servant scholar for Christ and His Kingdom. Learn more at wheaton.edu QTL.